All right, well, good morning. It's great to be here with you guys uh, this morning. My name is Seth. I'm, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I know I'm the, the senior pastor, so that does not mean if you're new that I don't want to talk to you. I would love to meet you and get to know you and shake your hand and hear your story. So it's the season where we're seeing people. And so if you come up and say hi, I would, I would love that. So, um, hey, uh, this last night, uh, I was uh, having a hard time uh, going uh, to sleep or falling asleep. So I uh, watched um, or pulled out YouTube and just was kind of kind of scrolling and found uh, this, you know, this, this video that says, you know, top uh, 100 most recognizable songs. And, uh, and so I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting, you know, and, uh, and so I kind of looked and really what it is is that it's this, it just shows maybe a couple seconds of just a clip and the lyrics of these different songs and they travel from, you know, 100 all the way to the, the most recognizable songs. And, and it's interesting uh, because um, in, in prep for this, I was thinking about using this, this one song uh, at the beginning of the sermon today, uh, and it actually happened to be in the top 10 of this list, which is kind of a fun thing to see. Uh, how many of you guys know Rick Astley? Yeah, yeah? Okay, if you don't know, if you don't know Rick, okay, which I guess none of us do, right? Um, if you don't know Rick, and if you don't know his song or what I'm talking about, maybe these words will stir your heart, okay? Here's what he's saying, right? I'm never gonna give you up. Right? You guys all know it. It's even most recognizable, right? Uh, I'm never gonna let you down. I'm never gonna run around or desert you, right? I'm never uh, going to make you cry. I'm never going to say goodbye, and I'm never going to say a lie, right? Um, and certainly, I'll never hurt you, right? Um, here's what I want to know. What island does he live on, and who are his friends? Because I want some of those friends, right? Do you? Like, do you? Like, like this is the thing. Like, you go, look at these people. You go, this is a total lie, Right? Like there's, there's, no, like there's no person apart from Jesus Christ who can say to you, hey, I'm never going to hurt you. Because we all do. Um, this is Christmas season, so it just reminded me of the story uh, from many uh, years ago. Um, well, started many years ago, but this last year we were unpacking uh, some boxes. Um, and uh, we all have these boxes, okay? It's a box that we hadn't even unpacked since we moved three years ago, right? And they're, they're hidden somewhere in your house. Um, and we were unpacking and finally kind of just finally getting shifting through those final details of different things. And, and, uh, and I pull out this package of cards, right? And I look at these cards and I thought, man, what, what are these? And Nikki, my wife, she goes, those are the cards that you bought me. And I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't remember those cards at all. And she goes, they were the cards you got me at Christmas. And immediately, she didn't even have to finish the sentence. I was like, oh my goodness, fatal error. Fatal error. Because here's what, my, my wife loves like, like thank you cards or like little notes that you leave around the house. And so one year I had bought these with just great intention and I put them in her stocking. And when she pulled them out, I was like, those are for you. I'm gonna write a note to you all throughout this next year. <laughs> and then here I am looking at this, and I was like, 100% unopened, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like, to, like fatal error, you know, like, like oh my goodness, like, cause this is the deal, like, like, there's no, like, we, we constantly hurt each other, like, we fail, like, in the world, like, there's no person who won't hurt you, and that you're not going to ever let down, right? And so we're in this, in this series uh, in Advent, and here's what Advent means, right? And we're going to be talking about love. 
But it says this is the period of preparation for the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ at Christmas and, and also uh, a preparation for the second coming of Christ. And so really uh, what this is, is this is a designated time for us to kind of wrap our hearts um, around how do, we, how do we celebrate Jesus in, in, in new and fresh ways? Because the Christmas story, for, if you've been a Christian for a long time, and maybe you haven't, and, and so maybe this is new and fresh, but like the Christmas story is the Christmas story, right? And every Christmas you come to the same story. And so there's this reality, though, that, that we need to celebrate Christmas with the best that we have and make the most of celebrating who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish, while at the same time, anticipating that the story that Jesus started is not yet complete, right? Like we live in this already but not yet fully done tension, and this is where we live, right? And so Advent then serves as a way to prepare and get our hearts around preparing to celebrate as well as to anticipate the second coming of, of Jesus. And so um, we're going to be, last week we, we talked about hope. Uh, we talked about how our eternity, uh, like our hope is tied to the things in, in the eternal um, and, and not to the present. And so we go hope and then this week is love. Next week, uh, Ken, Pastor Ken's going to be here and he's going to preach on joy. Um, and then the week after we'll do peace and then we'll, you know, culminate with, uh, with Jesus Christ uh, at, uh, at Christmas Eve. And so part of what we do um, to, to help us kind of identify, at least visually kind of see this anticipation like we're celebrating. And so we light a candle. This last week was hope. Um, and this week is love. And, and we do this because then as we look at these candles, as they burn throughout the service and, you know, um, you know, we look at them and we see, okay, gosh, we, we realize there's two, there's still three more to come. And so we're building an anticipation as we grow in this, in this, this culture of celebrating and anticipating uh, Jesus. So we're going to talk about hope this morning. Um, but before we do that, I want to set some of the context because in culture, our culture, the world that we live in, hope is a, is a, is a, is a very broad word. And so um, this last week, as I was in uh, different meetings and staff meetings and meetings with other people, um, I asked, I just said, you know, off the top of your head, and I said, like, give me, give me your gut responses because there's, there's obviously a correct answer here that if you, you think really hard, you will over-spiritualize this. So I just said, give me your gut responses. What are the things when you talk about things that you love, what do you typically say, right? Um, and so one of them was the idea of, of marriage, right? And so you've got, you know, this diamond ring, right? There's your diamond ring, and, and, uh, and I, I would assume that that's, that's love for the spouse and not because they're lazy and just want a partner to do half of the work, you know what I'm saying? Um, so we have this, like, love for marriage, and then, like, just rom romance in general, right, falls into that. But there's also this sense of, you know, friendship. You know, you got two people, you know, they're, they're hanging out, and, and part of that is, like, they're, they're laughing, you know, ha, ha. Um, just laughter. We love laughter. We love friendships, right? That's very, that's an important uh, thing. Um, another one was like just the whole, the whole realm of food, you know? So if we put like, like a coffee mug, you know, down here, like I might say, I love coffee. I love spicy foods. Like some people would say, I love going out to eat. Um, you know, one person was like, I love eating anything that I don't have to make. And I was like, that's totally fair, right? Like, that's totally fair, right? So you've got these types of things. Um, you've also got kind of more objectual things. And, and I'm just going to put this on here because I know, I guys, I know that we all are feeling this, okay? We all love the Cubs. <laughs> because we love Jesus, we all love the Cubs, right? So just going to put that up here. But this also represents, I mean, it, it, 
It means football, right? It means a whole host of different things that we would say. I love those things, right? Um, another one is this, you know. Um, it's kind of hard to draw, and, and I'll give you a hint as to what it is. What is it? A guitar, right on, right? What's that game, like Telestrations or something? You guys got it. Um, so I'll give you, uh, I don't even need to give you a hint. Who, who do you think guessed this or said this? Music. Brady, duh, right. Like music, we love music. Um, like this is a thing that we say, we talk about. Um, we've had this debate, right, recently that uh, some people love Christmas music in October, right? Uh, some people who love Jesus more love it in September, right? Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding, just having a fun time here, right? Um, and then there's this whole other box, right? There's this whole other box that's kind of like this miscellaneous box that we kind of throw things into. Like somebody said, I love sleep. Right? And for some people, it's like, I, I love accomplishing something, like feeling like I woke up and really did something, right? Uh, and for some people, it's like, I really love when I just get to sit and relax and not do anything. Some people said they love silence. For other people, it's that they love noise. You know, like there's just this whole host of things Then we think about how the world and how we collectively talk about the idea of love, right? And we go, why, why is this an important question, right? Because the reality is, is that all of these things are good things. Now, can you love bad things? Sure. But those aren't on the board, okay? We're not putting those things on the board. We've got good things. These are all good things, right, um, that are on the board that, that we choose to love. And so, but as I was redoing some research and studying this week, uh, one of the words that came up and is, is talking about the word love is it says that love is hackneyed, right? And I don't even know if I'm saying that correctly, right? Hackneyed means this. It means that a word, when it lacks significance through having been overused and has become unoriginal and trite. Do you want to know what word is not hackneyed? Hackneyed. Because I didn't even know what it meant. You know what I'm saying? And yet love, though, becomes this word like, that we toss it into this barrel. You know, or maybe it's like a, like a drawer. It's like the love drawer. You know, that you've got all these different things in a drawer. And, and so you've got your, you know, your, your sports things and your foods and your drinks and the wedding ring or whatever it is. And you pull it out and you're rummaging through, right? And you're trying to, to figure this all out. Or maybe it's like throwing things into like a barrel that like kind of just dilutes everything down. And all of a sudden, we begin to wonder, we go, okay, so if this is how we talk about love, right, here's, the, here's why it's important, and this is this great question, like where does our love for God fit? Because what we say is, I love cheeseburgers, but we also say, I love God. And so we wonder, where does this overlap and how does this actually work? Do I, and it begs the question, do I love God in the same way that I love cheeseburgers? And we go, we know that these are different, okay? We know that these are different, but just humor me for a second, because let's just talk about this. Like, if I love God in the way that I love cheeseburgers, does that mean that I, that I can consume God whenever I want to? Maybe. When I talk about loving, you know, cheeseburgers and loving God, does that mean that I love God based on how I doctor him up in the way that I want him to be? Maybe. And see, all of a sudden, we begin to realize that this isn't as absurd as maybe we think, and that there's this bleeding, there's this bleeding over at times, and we need to, to identify love the way that God designed it, right? Because so, we know these two worlds, these two words are very different, right? 
And, and so we need to go, okay, what does God say about that? And in order to do that, we need to talk about love the way that God defines it and the way that God designed it, okay? The way that God defines love and the way that God designed love, okay? So here's the deal. Um, if you've got a Bible, open up. We're going to be uh, in one passage. Um, it's uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Uh, to start, um, and I just want you guys to know that there's no way that we can cover like everything about love. I mean, entire systematic theology books have been written on the concept of love, and so we're going to touch like even just the smallest fraction uh, on that. But I do want us to to think about this one passage. So while you're turning to Deuteronomy chapter six, which is way left in your in your Bible, I just want to just again set the umbrella a little bit for the idea of love because in the Old Testament or even in the New Testament, when you look in 1 John 4, what we find is that it says that God actually is love. And this is a hard concept for us as humans to wrap our brain around because even though we have a soul and a spiritual side, we also have a very physical, right, bones and flesh and blood and skin and all those things, right? And that's hard because when we think about God, though, who is spirit, right, his DNA, his makeup, his, his composition is different than ours. And from him, it says that he is love. Like, that's what he's made from, right? Like, he is love. And so it's out of this love that, that emanates into, ultimately, in, uh, um, animates into, uh, the, into the world, right? And so for us, that's hard for us to wrap our brain around just because these, these, these concepts and these components are so different. And yet, God is love. But I want you to think about what he does with his love. Look at Deuteronomy 7. Uh, it says this, it says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. See, see we talking about that, there's that love, there's that, that word there. And what he's saying is that it, when he talks about love, this is emanating from his character because this has nothing to do with what we've earned or deserved, right? It's not that we were greater or better. In fact, we were actually the fewest of the people, it says, but it's because the Lord loves you. In addition, it's this idea of keeping this oath and covenant that he established with the forefathers, and so he's a God that keeps his promise. And yet it says out of this love that he is, he's choosing, right? And so love for God is this, this natural thing, right? It's an affection, right? It's this affection with effect. And what do I mean by that? It's like we, we sometimes confuse these words, right? To affect and effect right? It has this affection, and yet out of that, that emotion, out of that love, there's this effect, and it's this causing, it's this doing, it's this, this action that exists in the world as a result of that, and those two things working together, right? And so what, what God does is, is the source of love is He's giving love, like He can very much intentionally choose to give it, right? He places it, He sets it on people, but as He gives it, there's an expectation that that love is actually given back, Okay? And so it's meant to be reciprocated back to the Creator. And this is where we're at in Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, verse 4. Here's what it says It says, Here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, and you uh, shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Okay, let's just stop there. So I've added some emphasis here. Um, and, uh, and I would love, I mean, it'd be neat to do a series on just this, this sentence, these verses sometimes, because how many key words are in this. But I want to focus in on the word love here, okay? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, okay? So if we come back over here, 
We're going to come and, and we're, going to, we're going to look at this because the, the word that we're talking about here in Hebrew is this word. It's the word ahava. Okay, um, and, uh, and this is a unique word. I mean, I mean, I wasn't super great at Hebrew, and so I had to figure out how to remember words, and so I'm gonna teach this to you, so if you like it, great, you wanna learn something awesome. If you don't, that's, that's okay. But ahava, the way I remembered it, is because it sounds like I have, right? And so you think about God's love, that's not what it means, but when I think about ahava, what I think about is that I have God's love. Does that make sense? Ahava. Right? This, is, this, is, this is the way that God is, is, this is his love. And yet, when we think about what does the Bible actually say, how does the Bible use the word ahava? So if we come out over here, we're actually going to find that there's kind of this other, this other concentric circle of things uh, that we love. Now, very infrequently, this word ahava can mean like romantic, right? In Hebrew, there are many other words actually that, that, that do this like a lot more justice, right? And so this romance um, piece, but seldomly ahava refers to that. Um, another thing can be the idea of a parent. And so you've got a father and maybe a son, you know, or something like that. Uh, and then there's this family or parental love that happens. Um, here's another one. You've got, remember the story um, of David and Jonathan, right? Jonathan, the son of Saul, King Saul, they became best friends and, and they have this deep love for each other. And so there's this brotherly love that happens um, in this space, right? And also, it says that there is like, you can have love for the kings, right? For, your, for the authority. So like when the people loved King David, right? So we're seeing, we're seeing all these kind of expand, right? Then you've got, you know, it kind of continues, right? And we know that it says, love your neighbor, which Jesus quotes later, right? He says, love your neighbor. Um, and I drew the house, and that's entirely inadequate because neighbor just really means wherever you're at and whoever's near you. It doesn't mean your house, but as a symbols and a representation, you know, he says to love your neighbor. But also, beyond that, it also talks about the sojourner. So the people who come even from a whole other country, the people who don't look like you or talk like you, right? As they establish friendship or neighborhood or as they live with you, he says love the sojourner, right? And even harder than maybe all of that, maybe the most difficult, is that when he says you shall love your enemies, like the people who hate you, who would kill you. And so as you look at this, you go, okay, so here's all these, these types of love in our culture. Here's how the Bible uses the word ahava, right? And so one thing that, that's, that's, worth, that's worth noting is that there's a distinction between what's in yellow and what's in orange, is that what's in yellow is entirely relational. This is people-oriented, right? Not all of these things are all the times, right? And so uh, sometimes they are, but, but here it's this entirely relationship. It's this idea of how we embrace, it's this broad idea of how we embrace and comfort and care for each other in the world, people to people, person to person, right? And yet we go, okay, so this is a still a pretty large umbrella, and he's talking about loving God. So is this what it means to ahava? God. Is this what it means to love God back? Well, in part, it is. Why? Because we love because he first loved us. So part of how we express our God love to God is actually to other people, 
right? And so there is, in part, a sense in which this is how we love God. But the reality is, is that we're also moving deeper and deeper into the centerpiece, right? And the, and the closer we get to this God, Ahava, the more intensifying of a nature and relationship that we have in this space. And what we're building is this covenant relationship, this covenant language that exists between God and his people, right? So you've got God on the one hand, right? And then you've got man. Man was what? He was created in the image of God. He bears this image. And so here is this intense, natural relationship that's meant to be at the center of everything, right? There's this ahava type of setting, right? And the closer we get to the center, the more we're going to find how, how intense that language actually um, actually is. And what I love about this is that as you think about this, right, so even in the text it says, you know, the Lord our God is how many number? One, right? The world in which the ancient Jews, ancient Near East, and the world in which they lived, like monotheism was, was pretty, like, fairly unheard of. Okay? So in that world, polytheism or, or worship or love for all sorts of gods was very common. What I love about this then, what he's doing is this ahava, this God love, is that he is actually fighting against right, the fractured sense of love that the world contains. Because it's easy for us as humans to gravitate to any of these things, right? And for that, in some sense, for me to put my love on that object is for me to treat it like a God, right? If it takes place or consumes or covers this, right? And so when he says that, you know, the Lord your God is one, what he's doing is he's inviting people away from the polytheism of the world, which is a hard word for us to wrestle with, because we go, gosh, I have love for all these things. Does that mean that I'm a polytheist? No, right? But we always recognize that there's always tension in idolatry and worship, right? And so what he's doing is he's inviting us back to this relationship with the one true God, right? This one true God, and he's fighting against the fractured sense of love that naturally just fills, we fill our lives with all these other things. He's inviting us back into one. And he's directing it right at who? He's directing it at Yahweh. He says, you shall love the Lord your God, right? And he says three things, though. He says, you should do it with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your might, right? And, and all of a sudden, you look at this, and you go, wow, there's no room for partiality in this, is there? Right? Like this is like this encompasses and covers every aspect, right, uh, of our hearts. Like we are designed in totality to worship God with not 60%, not 70%, not 80%, not 99%. And it's not like we look at other people and we go, man, like I worship God. I love God. I do it at 90%, but they do it only do it at 70%. So I'm doing pretty good. That's not how we're wired. We're wired to give 100% of our love, our adoration, our awe, and our worship to the one true God. And because our heart has such a hard time with this, we need constant reminders, right? And, and this is what it lays out for us in, in this Old Testament text, right? He, he tells us these, these reminders. He says, these are commandments. These commandments, the words that I command you today, shall be on your heart, Verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk um, of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You go, wow, like, does that encompass like every part of your day? 
You see, all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your might is in its totality. So we need these reminders that create an environment that include the totality of life. And so it's like as you're walking, as you're sitting, as you're rising, as you're going to bed, right? All of these things are meant to be reminders, constantly talking about it, right, over and over and over and over again, right? And, and so much so that, that he even tells us that you would bind these on the doorposts, like put them on your door um, or put them on your heads. And this is, this is a very common thing, right? So this is part of what the Jewish people did, um, even, through, even through Jesus' times and even to today, right, is that they take these very words, like verses 4 and 5, they would write them on a piece of paper, they roll it up into a scroll, they put it into a tiny box, and then they put it on their forehead. And it's, like it's a box that's called a phylactery. And here's why. Because as you're walking everywhere you go, so you rise up, you rise up, that's a time when you're supposed to remember that you are designed what? To love God with all of your heart. As you leave your house and you see those words on your doorpost, and as you walk throughout the day, everywhere you go, there's this constant reminder on the front of your head, right, right here or right here or right here, that my design is to give God all of my love. And then when I come home at night, as I'm entering back to my house, I go past those words again on the doorpost, right? And it's this constant reminder Right? That we are designed to love God with everything, 100%, all of what we have. And so when you think about these, these, these words, right, this, this commandment, I just want to talk about two things really quick. One, um, when you think of commandments, what do you think of? Because when I think of commandments, I have this tendency to think about, um, like, do this or don't do that. Right? Does anybody else think about that? Right? Like a command is do this or don't do that, right? And there certainly is a sense because our heart does not know how to choose right from wrong at times, right? And so we need these, these rules and guidelines and boundaries that God sets up in the world, right? So there is this sense of commandment in that. But, here's what, but just reframe this for a second because God is not this narcissistic demanding God who is like creating rules to make life hard for people, that's not what he's doing. In fact, I think if you think about this, this command to keep these near your heart is in some sense, it's a call. It's a call. It's the calling of love. It's like, Seth, if you want to know how to interact with the world in the way that I designed you to, if you do these things, you start to act and look more like God. Like you begin to take on my character and to become to be conformed to the love, this ahava love that I have in its systemic, deep, fundamentally, intrinsically powerful way, right? There's this love that we can, that we can come to, right? Um, and so these constant reminders, though, that exist for us, that we need these constant reminders. Why? Well, this is revealing a fundamental problem with, with the human heart, is because when you look in the Old Testament, apart from Jesus, even in the New Testament, right? Like as, you, as we talk about the heart, apart from Jesus Christ, the human heart is described like a rock. It's not breathing, it's not beating, it's not pumping, right? It's this dead, inanimate, spiritually dead thing is, way, is this metaphor, right? It's like a rock. And so when you think about it, right, if you take, remember these words here, is that, is that these words, these commandments or these words would be near. The Hebrew word is actually above or near or on. So if you think about taking a rock and if you take a pencil and you write the commands of God on this rock, does it penetrate? No. Does it absorb it? No. 
It's pencil, which means that it wipes off pretty quick. This is the nature of the human heart apart from Jesus. And so words that are on or above are going to be constant reminders. It needs to be over and over and over and over because it's not inside. And so what it's revealing is that the part of the fundamental problem is that this is the, what Jesus addresses, right? And we've talked about this in 2 Corinthians 5, is that there is this transfer, a replacement when you are regenerated, when you become a Christian, a Christ follower, your old heart of stone is replaced with a new heart that is breathing and God's law is put inside of the heart and it's not on it, it's in it engraved into the heart as a living, principled being thing, as a part of our being, right? And so this is a fundamental thing. And so when you think about this, we go back to verses 4 and 5, and you think about this, you go back to this one word that I haven't talked about, I mean a lot of words, but this first word is the word here. How many of you guys have heard of the Hebrew word shema? Okay, this is the Hebrew word shema. What this means is to hear or to listen. In its most basic sense is that sound waves come in through our ears and we hear something. But here, this is so, fun, it's so important, guys, wrestle with this, okay? In Hebrew, in ancient Hebrew, there is not a separate word for obedience. So if you're going to talk about obedience in the Old Testament, what word do you use? Shema. Because here's what it means. It means listen and obey. The two are never separated. Listen and obey. They don't exist in separate boxes like we try to make them to be. It's listen and obey, right? And so when you think about that, you combine that with a sense of God's ahava, right? You have the Shema and you have this ahava. Ahava is this affection, right? It's a loving affection in between these, these relational people, yet it has what? Action. It's, it's, there's listening and obedience in both of these things that love gives back and gives out that which it receives, and it obeys the authority of God. And, and what we, you may remember that Shema, like, because this is, these are the words that, that, that Jewish people put in these, in these little scrolls and in ancient texts too, in ancient times, right? And they've made this into a prayer, they made this into a prayer. And when they talk about the Shema, there's really two Shemas they talk about. This is one of them. And so if you hear somebody talk about the Shema, this is what they're talking about. And it's this acknowledgement and reminder that our heart is, is broken and needs help, right? And so every single place that I go, whether I'm walking, I'm standing, I'm sitting, I'm lying down, I'm teaching, I'm not teaching, I'm doing whatever it is, there's this constant reminder that, that I am designed to love God with pure, unadulterated love because he's my creator. And that's ahava. That's ahava, right? And yet there's this disconnect, I think, for many of us as we transition into this next portion, which is, which is short, but there's this calling of love, this invitation to, to engage in this relational love with, with God the creator, right, in this ahava, but there's also a caution around love because there's a disconnect oftentimes for us as humans when we talk about loving God and yet we don't obey. Right? That's, that's a fundamental thing, right? It's part, part of this, right? And so there's this disconnect. And so how, how the Old Testament text deals with that is, is interesting. So listen to this in verse 10. It says, And when the Lord your God brings, brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, 
and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full. Okay, I just want to stop there and pause there for a second and show you this picture, okay? This picture is, is a picture of a cistern. I think I've showed this before. Um, but I, this is a New Testament. This is from when we went to Israel. And, uh, and, uh, and if you're living in a desert, dry desert climate, like how uh, do you get fresh water? Do you turn on a faucet? No. Where do you get it from? The sky. And so what do you do? You build these cisterns. And I don't know if it would have been the same size or smaller, but you would have taken a very rudimentary tool of shovel and backhoe of some kind that you'd have gone and dug into the ground, this massive hole, scooped all of the dirt out. Then you plaster the whole edge so that way as, as it collects water, the water doesn't leak, okay? Now, that's, and this is, your, this is quite literally your, your Old Testament water tank, like for your, your house right today, right? Okay, but here's the, here's the question. Like, just think about this. I want you to imagine yourself digging this, okay? With just a small rudimentary shovel. I want you to think about the sweat on your body. I want you to think about how, how much your back would hurt, how many hours it would take you. Because what God is doing here as he's laying this out for us, what does he do? He's saying, I brought you, I'm bringing you into this place, I'm bringing you into this place, and and by the way, I'm going to give you all these cisterns, which you didn't have to dig, and it includes cities, it includes olives, it includes figs, it includes all of these incredible, amazing things, and I'm bringing you in this place to flourish and to bless you, right, to bless you, and you don't have to do anything, like how great that actually is of a gift. Think about that as a gift, right? The hours and the sweat that you save in that space, right? But here's what he says. He goes on because he talks about this. He says, and when you eat and are full, verse 12, he says, take, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You see, just not long ago, his people had been in Egypt and they were They were under the burden and the bondage of sin and death to Pharaoh and God in love, not because they were greater than anybody else, not because they deserved it or earned it. He chose, he put his love on these people and he brings them out from this bondage of sin and death and he brings them to a place of flourishing where they don't have to do anything. They don't have to accomplish any of this digging. It's like all of this is done for you. And it's, it's not that in those places that we're full that we automatically forget God, but there's this tension in our heart because there's an immediate temptation. As soon as we become full, the temptation is to forget about God. That's the tension. That's the tension. As soon as we become full, right, it's easy to forget about God. And so this is what he says. He says, take care lest you forget that God brought you out of Egypt. And then he goes on into this next verse. And what does he say, right? He talks about how it is the Lord that you shall fear, right? It's the Lord your God and you shall fear him. Him you shall serve and by his name you shall swear. And so what he's doing is that he's putting the word for fear and in the same realm as love because to fear God is to love God. And here's, guys, here's the deal. As you think about this, here's what I want to challenge you with, right? There's something that you remember. Remember this is that you and I, we, we love that which we are. 
And the more awe that something brings us in life, the more loyalty and love we give it. And this is why Christmas can be so hard as a kid because I'm growing up and, and I ask for a certain gift and I'm unwrapping that gift and, and I'm so consumed by what's inside of this gift that I totally missed as a kid until older years that it was actually what was more valuable to me than what was in that was my mom and dad right on the side who I never even looked at because I was looking at the gift and it was out of their love that they gave me that gift. You see, Romans talks about how it's, it's easy for us to exchange the glory of God, the creator, for the created. And we exchange our love for God, this ahava love, right? And this is why we can connect last week to this week, because last week we talked about hope. And when our hope is placed on something eternal, right, our awe and our love gets shifted to that which is eternal. But as soon as our hope becomes temporary, our awe shifts to the temporary, and we put our love right with it. And all of a sudden, we begin to love the things of the world maybe more than what we have in this love for God. Look at verse 14. He says, you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. I love how this whole passage started with the idea that God is one. And it's as if here in this moment, again, what is he doing? Is it he's saying, gosh, don't go after all of these things. That's not what you're designed for. Right? Don't keep going after all of those things, right? This isn't, this isn't pluralism. This isn't polytheism. This isn't this, this anything goes. This is we're drawing it in to the one true God, the one true creator God that we are designed to love with all of our being. And look at verse 15. He says, for the Lord your God, in your midst is a jealous God. Um, I told the story earlier, and I think it's, I think it's helpful. Um, many, many years, I mean, Nikki and I have been married for 11 years, and, um, and uh, before that, we obviously had a date, and before that, I was really deciding if this is a person I wanted to pursue, and, and as I was deciding that this is a person that I really wanted to pursue, um, I gathered. So I was right out of, I was out of seminary and interning with the college students, and Nikki was out of college and interning with the high school students, and so I, I looked at this guy, and I thought, man, I need to get to know this girl. So what I do is I gather all of the interns, minus Nikki, I gather everybody together. I say, here's the deal. I want to get to know Nikki, and you're going to help me. Okay, this is how this is going to work. You don't have a choice. I'm older than you. Okay, respect your elder. Kind of thing. No, just kidding. Um, and I, so I gather all these interns, and so we create this plan together. It's just this, this, we're in cahoots, which is great, right? And so then I go to Nikki with this plan, and I say, hey, Nikki, hey, we're going to do this intern gathering. Um, we would really love for you to be there. She goes, actually, uh, we're traveling that weekend. I can't. I said, no worries. We'll change it. <laughs> no big deal. We'll change it, right? And so I said, what about uh, that day? She goes, actually, we have a youth ministry thing. No problem. We'll change it again. <laughs> just, I thought I was being clever, but I really wasn't, you know? And so we finally figure this out. We're a time where we all come together and we play this really dumb game called Quelf, which I hated. And it just makes you do weird, goofy things. And so Nikki gets this card and it says, for the remainder of the game, put a finger on the shin of the person next to you. 
And I was like, what? What is this game? This is so silly. It's so funny. <laughs> and then she puts it, and it's this guy to the, her right, and his name is Brandon, right? Brandon is a wonderful guy. He works in college ministry with me. He was later in our wedding. I love Brandon with all my heart. He was even married at the time, but she put his fing- her finger on his shin, and I went, <laughs> And I stared because something stirred in me, and it was jealousy. I was like, I know you, I know you're married, I love you, but I'm watching you. Because jealousy, right? God is a jealous God. You remove the sin from that, you remove the sin from that, and all of a sudden you have God in the way that he looks at his creation and says, guys, I'm jealous for you because you and I are designed for Ahava. Ahava is greatest right here. It's intensified the closer we get to the center. This is how this part ends. Look at this in verse 15. Right? For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from the face of the earth. Merry Christmas. That's a great, cozy, warm-hearted Christmas message right there, right? And yet we remember that God, though he is holy and is righteous and has all power to back it up, is balanced because God is love. And he doesn't love us because we deserve it or because we earn it, but it stems from his character and he chooses it to place it on people. And thanks be and praise be to God who is a God who pursues and who looks at the world and says, I will not fail at correcting this situation. Look at the end here really fast, First John 4. We've gone from the calling of love, this invitation to love, to this idea of this caution around love because God's wrath, right, is existing in the world, right? And in 1 John 4, 9, here's what it says. It says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. You see, Jesus Christ is the manifestation of God's love. He's the symbol and the perfection of God's pursuit for his people. That's who Jesus is. He's manifested in the present, in in human flesh, not in the the far cosmos, but right on earth. And so, guys, I think about this, I go, man, like, I, I know we talk about love in so many ways, but love doesn't need to be watered down because love and the way that God defines it and designed it is not some, like, esoteric, like, ethereal reality. It's tangible because Jesus Christ made it tangible. That's Jesus. That's love manifested. And we said earlier that the closer we get to the center of this, the more intensifying of this relationship and this word becomes because we're talking about the gospel. Because all of a sudden, we look at God and we look at man who he deser- he doesn't deserve God's ahava, and yet he chooses to, to make this possible. And Jesus, who is, who is part of the Trinity, who's experiencing the ahava in relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, he looks at the problems of the world, and, and because he's perfect, and because perfect love, there's no fear, he says, no problem, I got this. And he sets it aside. He sets aside that for a moment that he would enter into this tiny little baby, that he would grow to an adult that in the perfection of his life would die on a cross to save us from our sins. And that's Ahava. 
You see, it's intensified language the closer we get to the center. And that appears scandalous to us. Look at verse 10. Here's what he says, right? This is why. He says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Guys, that's just a really long word for exhausting the wrath of of God. And that appears scandalous to us because we don't have a category for that kind of love. Because we talk about love and we're all out here in these fuzzy wuzzies. Right? And all of a sudden we get into this, we get into the core truth of the gospel. And what we find in this space is that Jesus became the forgiveness of sins for us. He bridges this gap, and it's in this space that what Jesus does is that he fully exhausts the wrath of God. All that stuff that has to deal with, like earlier in the Deuteronomy passage, it says that the wrath of God will come and be on this. Jesus, in his death and his resurrection, fully accomplishes and exhausts the wrath of God so that what? You and I may fully experience the ahava of God. And yet, here's the temptation come Christmas season or whatever season, is that even though it's been fully exhausted, we have full access to it. Here's the caution. Lest our heart be full with other things. You see, that's the temptation. Because the same thing is true in the Exodus as is true for the cross. God gave cisterns that were fully dug and full cities. Everything was accomplished for them. Same thing as here. Everything was accomplished for us. And the moment that we become full, the temptation is that we no longer want the ahava that God gives. And instead, we replace it and exchange it for the love and the glories of the world. And what I love about this, guys, is that as we begin to experience real ahava, which by the way, guys, you can, you, apart from Christ, you can exist, but you will not live. It doesn't matter how much you love cheeseburgers, it doesn't matter how much you love the Cubs, it doesn't matter how much you love your spouse. Because what you're designed for is ahava with God. And what I love about this is that when love really stems from the center out, all of a sudden we find ourselves adding into this map the things that we didn't even know existed because all of a sudden we realize here's that guy in your life or that woman in your life who's 100% unlovable. And yet you find because now that you've experienced ahava, you go, this person is lovable. Not because they deserve it, not because they earned it, but because that's what I was given. And this then stems even bigger and broader into the world of racism and injustice. And we find the love of God, the ahava, emanating out from us in a way that radically changes the world. Because we love that which we awe. May we be in awe with God most. Let's pray. God, when I, when I think, I know that when I think about uh, this passage and I think about the, the ahava that you have given and we go, I, I can have the ahava. I can have 
that because of Jesus Christ, that tangible love of Jesus Christ in my life and in our lives. And so, Lord, this Christmas season, as we are preparing for Advent, Lord, may our hearts be drawn to the Creator and not to the created. May we be reminded of the great love which gives the greatest gifts and not the gifts themselves. And it doesn't mean, God, that we can't love the things of the world, right? That we, can't, that we can't find love in those things. But Lord, that those would be these natural ripple effects, this emanation that's coming out of our heart as we're moving closer and closer to this covenant relationship with you, that as you embrace us, that as we embrace the world and show that love, that people will go, man, your love is different because it's what you've been given. Lord, we love you. And you're going to pray. Amen.